For the week of December 30th, 2019, this is Star Wars TV Talk, where we dive deep into every Star Wars TV and Disney Plus streaming series, as well as the latest news coming out of Lucasfilm. This week, we are going to discuss the box office, whatever you want to call it, and however you feel about it. But we're talking about The Rise of Skywalker today. Uh, I'm super excited about this, and to help me with my excitement is John. John, how you doing? Oh, I'm conflicted. I have so many thoughts. This is, a, this is an interesting movie we're going to be talking about tonight. Seems to be doing okay at the box office. I wouldn't call it a box office flop, but uh, I don't know if it's meeting expectations either. So this is just... This is just one of those movies that I don't I don't think everyone's going to be on the same page for, and uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it because uh, I haven't heard two people on the internet with the same take on it, so lots to talk about for sure. Yeah, and I have yet to talk to you about this. I have no idea how <laughs> you feel about it. You have no idea how I feel about yep. it. Uh, so this is going to be exciting. I have talked to uh, some people that like to watch the movies, and they have enjoyed uh, the saga thus far. I have talked to a few people that didn't feel as gr- as uh, what's it called as as excited or didn't sure. like the Last Jedi as much, and they I got their opinion. So I have a couple of opinions going into this. But we have a film, and this film, I feel like it just hit the ground running and never really stopped. I didn't feel like there was a lot of lag time, but I may be alone in that. So let's just go ahead and uh, get into this. But first, John, you did some reporting on the uh, the box office here. So what's what's going on with that? Um, nothing terribly exciting. And I think maybe that's really the headline about the box office is it's tracking very similar to where last Jedi was at, which is not bad because as you go through, um, you know, a trilogy like this, you don't expect the subsequent films to have the same amount of impact as the first one, in this case, the force awakens. So the last Jedi performed about as well as I think most people expected it to hitting somewhere around 1.2, 1.3 billion, um, for its full worldwide run. It looks like Rise of Skywalker probably isn't going to quite hit that, but it is looking like it could still top a billion. It's a little tricky to to predict at this point because it came out so close to Christmas. There's a lot of trouble getting people into the theater, you know, when they're traveling, when they've got family commitments. So that's a little disruptive in the first couple weeks of its release, which is when most people are really watching the numbers because it's the big opening weekend. And then, you know, how much does it dip on the second week? Um, that kind of stuff, you can't put too much stock in because we're at a very bizarre time of year where it just doesn't follow the same rules as, as most movie releases. So what we really have to look at is how it performs over the next few weeks. Does it gain back a little bit of steam as people get home and are like, Oh, you know what? Whirlwind holidays behind me. I want to check out that star Wars movie. Some people are saying it's okay. The critics seem a little split, but you know what? I, I gotta see it. I gotta see it in the theater. Like there's those casual people that wouldn't go out of their way to see it in the midst of the holidays, but we'll pick it up in early January when everything else in life is slow. So I'm expecting that it's going to track very similar to last Jedi when all is said and done. Um, but is that what Lucasfilm and Disney were hoping for? I, I don't think so because this is supposed to be the culmination of the trilogy. This is supposed to be the big send off of the Skywalkers. This had a whole lot of marketing muscle put behind it and it proved to be a very divisive 
uh, film, at least for the critics, like right out of the gate, it wasn't getting stunning reviews. And that obviously dampens a little bit of the enthusiasm right there. So, um, you know, who knows what, uh, Bob Iger has to say about it, but, uh, I have a feeling that if this doesn't top the last Jedi, it's going to be seen as, uh, an indication that there's something amiss in how they're approaching star Wars. And we could go into that a lot deeper, but I guess that's, uh, my full analysis on the box office for now. Yeah, and the one thing that I want to point out is I am always a pretty positive individual when it comes to these type of things, but the numbers don't lie, and this is something (laughs) that, of course, Disney was hoping would go out and just smash box office records. And you you look at it and you think, well, they don't need to smash all those. They had the Avengers that smashed all those records. They had Force Awakens that smashed it, whatever. But this is a Star Wars film. This is the reason that Disney took over Star Wars. And if it's not breaking these records, yes, Numbers don't lie, and this is a concern for people like Bob Iger, who who is a business individual, and you could say he's a fan, whatever, he, he probably is, but yeah, business is what makes everything run, and if it's not cashing in where they want it, then we can expect them to maybe push the brakes again, like they, I mean, they've already done it, they've already kind of... uh look back at things as we talked about when solo first came out. Uh, but yeah, so it doesn't matter how I feel about the movie, even though I loved it, this, the, the box office is definitely concerning for me. So let's go ahead and get into the story of this film and how we feel about it and our takes on it. And let's just get into it. Shall we now? One thing, uh, spoiler alert, right? Like we're just jumping into it. There's no non-spoiler upfront and then spoilers in the back. This is just a free for all discussion. Whatever is said is said, consider yourself warned. Spoilers. <laughs> yes. From the beginning, from the opening crawl, we get a massive just plot driving thing. I thought that Palpatine might've been a kind of a little bit of a sl- not necessarily slower. I thought it was going to happen within the first 10 minutes, but I didn't expect it was going to be in the crawl right. that, you know, the dead speak Palpatine has figured out a way. Uh, and then it goes into this planet that Kylo Ren is fighting on and that planet's Mustafar. Mm-hmm. So John, how did you feel about going back to this planet that we've seen? Uh, this is the second time we've seen it in this, uh, this Disney era of star Wars. We saw it, right. uh, Briefly, briefly in Rogue, Rogue One, One. Yeah. and then we see Kylo Ren going after his Sith navigation device uh, in Mustafar. Uh, I don't know. It's, it's Mustafar. Great. Like they needed some place to stage the set piece. Um, more interesting than the planet, I, I think, is just how they decided to open the film, which was with this slow motion, but still frenetic, like very tightly edited. Um, just Kylo decimating hordes of, uh, obstacles, you know, uh, people in his way, uh, to try and find this wayfinder. It was definitely a different feel for the opening of a star Wars movie. The, the fact that they did it with slow motion and they, they did it with such a staccato type of editing. Uh, it really kind of threw me like visually it was great. Like it, it was uh, very artistically handled and you, you get through a lot of action very quickly. I think that's probably what, they were trying to do was they had this big set piece. They realized the movie's running long and they, they try to figure out some creative way to whittle it down to just a, you know, a minute of screen time. I'm just not sure how I feel about that in a star Wars movie. Cause star Wars movies tend to be very linear. They, they don't um, rely on a whole lot of, uh, you know, visual artistry, mm-hmm. you know, the, 
the artistry is in uh the the effects you know and the worlds that are built it's in the costuming it's in the sets it's in the you know the the visual effects so you don't see a lot of this kind of um visual storytelling and it just didn't really feel like a, a star wars movie to me so that's that was the first thing you know my first impression of this movie is like they're they're really pushing the boundaries of of what a star wars movie looks and feels like and that didn't stop the pacing of this movie, uh, there's a lot to be said about how it's edited and how it's paced. But that was really my take on the Mustafar sequence. Yeah, well, whenever I first heard that the runtime of the film was two hours and 21 minutes, I have to say I was a little bit concerned because I didn't feel like we would be able to get through all of this stuff. Sure. And we kind of see that with some of the editing. And yeah. who knows what the what the decisions were whenever they came to this, that they had to cut it down to that amount. Maybe they didn't even film as much as we originally thought. Uh, who knows? But Oh, my... they did. The first cut of this film was like four hours long. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, so this is, this is just JJ Abrams hacking frames, <laughs> you know, anything that can go has to go to try and whittle it down to two and a half hours. There was a lot more story, uh, baked into this than I think was appropriate for the runtime they were targeting. And that's why they had to edit it so tightly. Well, yeah, that would explain a lot. I think that's my biggest criticism with the film. That's the part that I felt the most confused about. Yeah. For the sake of editing, they've glossed over a whole lot of detail. And in a normal Star Wars movie, you would have a few establishing shots, right? The ship would come in over the planet and you'd recognize it and you'd know what it is. And then you'd get a shot in atmosphere, you know, and, and, and then exiting from the ship. Like you'd get all of that context to position you you know, in the scene and to know what's going on. And with this, they just threw all that out. They said, we don't have time to worry about establishing things. We just need to get on with it. And you feel it. You you feel the disorientation that comes with not getting any context for, for a lot of these set pieces. And it does hurt the film. It, it, it really does. Uh, Star Wars movies are not Marvel movies. They're not really supposed to be wall to wall action. Uh, uh, the classic trilogy and even the prequel trilogy. Right. And even force awakens, they always take time to breathe and, um, uh, build some sort of, uh, emotional heft mm -hmm. to the, the key aspects of the movie that, that deserve the extra time and attention to really flesh out and, and make meaningful. Uh, there's a, a bit of craft of the storytelling where you really want to invest in the characters and, and have those slow, quiet moments to reflect on, you know, what is the conflict? What's going on with these characters? And this movie it, it really feels like they just threw all that out the window. There was just no time to slow down. Um, yeah. So you, you see it. Yeah. Right from the first scene, but uh, there's a whole lot of movie to get through. So maybe we need to move on from Mustafar. Yeah. And the thing that I did appreciate was the establishment of the Supreme leader, Kylo Ren, that was in a crawl because we hear that Palpatine has come back. And then we read later on the last sentence is basically Kylo Ren is tracking him down be, to terminate anyone that challenges his power. So right. we get that Kylo Ren at the start of this film is extremely power hungry. We got that towards the end of The Last Jedi. And now we have that here where he he doesn't even care about negotiating with Palpatine, and he never really does, as we come to find out. He's just trying to track him down to terminate him, but then he goes to the planet, he gets there through the Wayfinder, and encounters Palpatine. 
So this introduction of Palpatine that we get within the first five minutes of the film was really interesting. And there's a lot of theories about how this Palpatine survived and whatnot. But one of the things I want to talk about is when he gets into his lair where he's being maintained, where he's pulling from some Snoke juice there, uh, he's he's definitely... He's pulling some power. He's he's getting the, the baby Yoda juice somehow, and it looks like it's through Snoke. So we get this this portion where Kylo Ren is, is going down, and he is saying that, yes, I killed Snoke, because Palpatine brings that up, like, Snoke trained you well. And he said, well, I killed Snoke. And he says, foolish boy, I've been every voice you've heard inside your head. So I feel like that if you've been paying attention and as soon as Palpatine was announced, that this was the major theory, that Palpatine was always the one kind of pulling the strings. So how did right. you feel about this happening within the first you know, five minutes of the film? Again, conflicted. On the one hand, I understand the spot that J.J. Abrams was in. Mm-hmm. He needed a home run for the final movie. And there's really only like one crown jewel left in the Star Wars franchise that you could mine to, to get you know, fans on your side. We basically killed off all of our main characters. The only one we got left at this point is the emperor. Um, I I understand why it would be really, really tempting to build the third chapter around the emperor. Mm -hmm. I get it. Uh, I, I understand why this would be a win for a lot of the fans. I felt like because they glossed over so much of well, you know, we saw the emperor go down that shaft and we saw him explode or we thought we saw him explode. Mm-hmm. If you're going to bring him back, you got to have a really clever way to do it. And that doesn't mean you spend 20 minutes, uh, of just pure exposition, filling in all the gaps between R- return of the Jedi and rise of Skywalker. No one's asking for that, but I needed something a little clearer than, eh, uh, I didn't really go anywhere. I've always been around and you know what? I'm a Sith and we have our Sith ways and don't you worry yourself with that. I'm just, I'm here, accept it. Uh, that is not enough for me. Not when, you know, there was a whole trilogy built around the idea of, of, uh, you know, Anakin sacrificing himself to save Luke and, uh, bring balance to the force. Like that was the culmination of return of the Jedi. That was the last half hour of that movie was beating the emperor and being redeemed. So to not, really have anything worthwhile to say about why the emperor is back and why we should just accept that basically everything that happened in return of the Jedi didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. Um, I don't know. It felt ham fisted. It felt shoehorned and it just didn't sit well with me. And I wanted to, I wanted to be all in on the emperor cause we knew he was coming. I just was really hoping they'd found a, a more clever way to bring him back than just to say, Hey, don't think too hard about it. We're moving quick. No time to deal with it. He's here. Just accept it. Let's move on. Eh, that's not great storytelling. No, and this is another thing where you have the the casual watcher of Star Wars who watches these films and they have no background knowledge. For mm-hmm. people like us who have had this background and and go back and watch multiple different uh, TV shows, read right. some books even, there are ideas that are introduced that could explain how Palpatine came back, but they weren't explained. So now it's up to us as fans coming up with their own ideas. And here's the thing about that. You may have the greatest idea in the world how Palpatine came back, but at the end of the day, that's just a theory at this point because nothing has been explained to us. And for the average viewer, that could hurt. And for film critics, we need to understand the film critics kind of look at that and see that as a major plot hole. You may have film critics that walked into this film and maybe have never seen another Star Wars film. 
or maybe they haven't watched any of the new series. And so the, the last one they watched was uh, the return of the Jedi or was a revenge of the Sith. So for them, they are even more lost and something that they thought, w- which was common knowledge that the emperor was dead is now, Nope, he's not. And we don't get exactly. an explanation as to why. So me personally, I'm, I'm okay with this and I have enough there where I can theorize like, okay, well there's definitely ways he could have done it. I don't have an mm-hmm. issue with that. I don't have an issue that, that he came back my issue is that I don't know which one of my theories is true on how right. he came back. And, and then have we to get, wait for the comic book tie-in to, to fill in the blanks for you. Yeah. And then we get, yeah. uh, you know, we get Pippin who mentions at the very beginning, like, Oh, yes. it's a, he, he must've been cloned and they yeah. never even touch on that idea again. So his whole Sith magic, you know, let's whatever. Yeah. Right. But his whole, his whole scene. So Pippin scene here, and I call him Pippin because that's how I know him from the Lord of the Rings, but right. his scene where he's talking, Oh no, that was Mary. It was Mary. My bad. This is bad podcasting. So Mary made the comment of it's a uh, it's a clone, but we don't get that explanation. They don't right. even discuss that. That's not even brought up ever again. Cloning's never brought up ever again in the the rest of this movie. And then we see the uh, the 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 twins of Snoke just chilling in a bathtub, getting their power drained out, or whatever is happening. Well, I, I think what they're doing there is Abrams is saying, "Look, the Emperor." that was on the death star was uh, an avatar was a, like a, a clone of Palpatine. Uh, so, you know, Palpatine's so smart that he's always one step removed from danger. He was never on the death star. It was his clone. So you kill a Snoke. Hey, I got two more in a jar. No problem. Mm. Right? Like I'm, I'm always pulling the strings and I can even pull the strings through these strong men that I've raised up and, and put in positions to, uh, administer my empire. I think that's what they're saying there. Um, and that's why he's saying I, I made Snoke, you know, like he, right. you, you, you hear Snoke. No, you were hearing me the whole time. So I think he's basically saying in return of the Jedi, whatever went down that shaft and exploded, that was not, you know, the final Palpatine. That was just one of his, you know, uh, I don't know, marionettes. Yeah. Well, that would explain a lot if it were actually explained because <laughs> exactly. we first but again, seen- the, now that's my headcanon. That's my theory. The same as, you know, you've got yours and the movie really needed to do something to make that clear it did because the first thing i noticed about palpatine is that his face wasn't all uh, deformed from his from his force lightning that him and mace windu had their their whole skirmish about but he was Mm -hmm. blind and he was missing some fingers and his his lips were all nasty zombie palps but yep. yeah, <laughs> but that's all, that's all I kind of got. So I really like that idea. I'm going to accept that into my head canon and it's going to stay that way until something else is explained, but it wasn't explained <laughs> in this film. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Two scenes in and, uh, it's, it's wild just how jarring this movie is. And I, I promise I'm going to get into some stuff I loved about the film. Mm-hmm. I will get there. And but- don't, don't get don't get me wrong. I, I want to say this up front because, as we all know, the Star Wars fandom is crazy and at times toxic. And there's a lot of people that are very quick to want to find fault with these films. So I, I got to say, the first time I saw it, I really was frustrated by the end of it and felt upset with how this trilogy had been handled. Like there was, there was a lot that this movie said about, uh, 
whether Star Wars had been in good hands and the leadership, you know, that was supposed to hopefully have a grand vision for this trilogy, whether they were asleep at the switch. Like there was a lot that was really frustrating me. I went back and watched it a second time. The second time I could take it on its own terms, knowing that, okay, well, this is what I'm in for. So now I can just sit back and try and enjoy it as a movie for what it is. And it's not nearly as frustrating, you know, uh, going back and watching again, this movie does actually have pretty good rewatchability mm-hmm. and there is a lot of good to find in it. Uh, it's just really hard coming out of that first showing to not feel like, Oh, they really fumbled this trilogy in some way. If this is where we ended up and, and I'm coming out of this just bewildered and overwhelmed and confused and frustrated, that's not how you want to walk out of a star Wars movie. So there, there are problems and we need, if, you know, if we're going to be fair, we need to talk about them, but I got to say there's a lot to like, and I did appreciate a lot of my second watch. And even of these two f- scenes that we've already gone through, look at, uh, the, the Sith realm that they're, they're painting under that, you know, big floating cube. Yep. Um, you've got statues and you've got atmospherics and you've got, you know, the classic, uh, emperor theme, and you've got so much that warms my heart at the same time. I just wish that there was a more cohesive story underpinning that because there was so much that I'm loving that I don't want to keep being pulled out of it by these things that are so jarring and, you know, (laughs) just not fully baked. So there's a lot of good, especially in the visuals, especially in, well, just what star Wars does really well, but yeah, we got to be fair too. And this is the third scene that we're going to get into, which (laughs) to me left me a little feeling like you, this was the first time. So in my first viewing, this was the first time I felt like you was this third scene where, or I guess it's the second scene. It's whatever scene that the light speed skipping yes. occurred. This is the first time in my first viewing that I felt like, oh, I don't have a background for this. I don't understand this. This is something new. And why is it so cool? And it's never been done before. Right. So we have Poe and Finn, which I loved. I loved their story. I loved Poe and Finn teaming up together and going on these side missions. And I would love to either read a comic about it, read a book about it, read something that, that kind of goes deeper into uh, the, the Poe and Finn relationship and what they were doing in these uh, in these days follow, following The Last Jedi leading up to The Rise of Skywalker. But mm-hmm. then it goes into the light sk- light speed skipping where they're right. just skipping around to all these planets, which we have never seen before. We saw the the landing at light speed from uh, from Han in right. The Force Awakens, and then we've seen some other you know light speed jumps, but it's usually outside of the atmosphere of a planet. This one, they're like in the middle of a planet, almost dying from the whatever is in their way in this. Yeah, the mouth of a beast. Yeah, uh, this to me is ridiculous. In a movie that is already as loud and fast as this movie is, why are we trying to amp it up to 11, you know, every single second of, of screen time? Um, it seems like it should be fun, but again, because it's moving so fast and because you don't really know, why do we have to do this? Why, why can't you just chart the course regularly? Like I, you blasted out of the, the ice cave or wherever it was that you got the intel from that guy. So why, (laughs) you know, like, is it just to try and make everything more exciting than any other star Wars movie that's come before? If so, they need to understand that we don't, we don't need that. You don't need to fill every frame with nonstop frenetic chaos for this to be a a fun ride. Uh, (laughs) I'd be okay. Just watching them play chess, you know, on the way home. Like you you can build a lot of good star Wars into those quiet moments too. Like, whew, we got away. Let's get back to the resistance base. 
let's sit down and play some chess like that. I would have been fine with that. I didn't need light speed skipping, especially when they jump into some environment. And I'm like, Oh, is that Bespin? Is that Coruscant? Is, is that what we're, where we were in some sort of gaseous place. Um, and all that's moving so quick that again, now I'm sitting there saying, well, okay. So like we get a flash of that place and we're just not supposed to know you know, why they had to stop there or what that place was. I don't want to be thinking about all these things that I didn't have time to absorb as I'm going through the movie. And I feel like this is just more of that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you, if you're trying to whittle down your movie, get rid of this extraneous stuff that doesn't really help anything other than it, it, it broke the Falcon, right? Like they get back and there has to be some bickering between Ray and Poe. And so they needed some reason why mm-hmm. the Falcon was all busted up. I don't know. There's better ways to get there. That, that was my thought. I mean, that's one of the callbacks is we have a busted up Falcon in this one, too. So <laughs> yes. the Falcon gets damaged again. It gets shot up by TIE fighters. So you get those type of callbacks. But the thing that I had an issue with was that it we get introduced to this light speed skipping, which mm-hmm. we haven't seen, at least in from my knowledge, we have not seen this ever. Mm-hmm. And this is very confusing because at the end, it seems the only re- it seems that light speed skipping is just common knowledge and not a lot of people can do it. But Poe can yeah. do it. And apparently the TIE fighters chasing him can do it. Right. But there's not a lot of people that know how, which is fine. So we know it's a rare thing that people aren't able to do. Then we also see that it's a difficult thing and that it damages ships, which mm-hmm. would have also been fine. But if the Millennium Falcon, as old and as beat up as that piece of junk is, if it can do it without the compressor, then right. surely the uh, the First Order has has TIE fighters that can do it much better, which maybe they can, but that wasn't established. It looked very cool. It was definitely geared up to 11. But yeah, it, it kind of threw me off because I'd never seen it before. And I, And for me, I like to look at those things and say, well, why weren't other people using this at the time? Because it seems extremely beneficial. Yeah, this is Abrams prioritizing uh, visual excitement over any kind of logical, coherent um, accountability to the rules of the universe. Like, the very first Star Wars movie, Han gives us everything we need to know about light speed. You gotta wait for the Nava computer, because if you don't, you're gonna fly into a star, and that's it. Right. Like light speed is this technical calculating process. It is not, uh, you know, a, a dragster. It's not, it's, it's not anything that you're directly controlling. It is something that you make your ship do because it's such a, a precise and finicky process that to get it right, you need a computer doing millions of calculations every, you know, second to keep you on track. Um, so to reduce it to, you know, this silliness that uh, <laughs> a human somehow has the, the wits to be able to jump in and out of light speed without waiting for those calculations or whatever it is. It, it, it doesn't really play true to what they've already established in star Wars. So that in and of itself is a bit of a problem. Now they've been playing fast and loose with light speed for the last few movies. So I don't want to get too star Trekky on this. Like I understand this is space fantasy. This is not science fiction. So I don't want to, I don't want to be that guy, but at the same time, if they've already built that into the universe, have some respect for it, right? Like Abrams has seen the movies when they're writing all this stuff. He must know that he's really playing fast and loose with some really heavily established stuff that most star Wars fans are going to be a little put off by. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh Oh, then we- <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, this whole conversation seems to be, uh, getting a little lopsided here. Uh, yeah. There's gotta be something good we can talk about here. 
it has a theme and we're breaking it at least temporarily. I think for sure. me, I'm, I'm pretty much done with the things that I had issues with. But okay, for a yeah. lot of people, I mean, that's the first 15 minutes of the film where every scene has something like, wait, wait, that's, that's in Star Wars now. So yeah, yeah. we're going to just accept that and move on. Mm-hmm. And then we get into something that was really neat and I thought uh, had some emotion to it, which was sure. Ray's training. So then yes. we get our heroine, we get Ray training on this planet and using a lot of uh a lot of familiar devices. I mean we have the lightsaber, we have the little the little uh cube or not cube, the sphere that floats around and shoots at you. The we remote. have the, the helmet with the shield, all the all the sort of stuff that she's using to train yes. herself to become a better Jedi. And then of course Leia is overseeing all this stuff. I have to say I enjoyed and I felt I truly did feel like this was the best way they could have handled Leo given the circumstance. So that was a positive for me. I enjoyed that we have Ray doing these things and that she still has that connection with Kylo Ren, even though Snoke is dead. And Mm -hmm. this felt more like star Wars in the previous two scenes. And it was beautiful. It was emotional. It made you invested in our, in our hero. I, I loved this portion. Agreed. A hundred percent. This is the first time that the movie slows down enough for you to care about what you're seeing on screen. And that's so important. And yes, we're checking in on our heroine. They're telling us a lot about where she's at with her training. You know, she's, she's floating there like a, a Zen master <laughs> rocks, you know, uh, levitating around her. She's obviously come a long way in her training. You've got Leia there. And and I agree with you for what they had to work with, you know, uh, just cutting room floor scraps of Carrie Fisher. And they had to try and figure out some way to work her in organically into this movie. I applaud it. That's, that's beautiful. And the fact that they made the effort to do that and try and give our princess a proper send off high marks. Like I said, there's a lot in this movie that you, you can like. And on my second watch, there was a lot that I really, really latched onto and said, you know what? That's a cool moment. I can give it that. And this was definitely one of them. Uh, this felt like star Wars. And the fact that this breathed enough for me to feel something makes it a win. And I enjoyed this scene and I'm totally in agreement with you. Yeah. And I really appreciated that this is really the first time that Ray or that we see this isn't the first time that she's felt this way, but it's the first time that we see that she has not earned Luke's lightsaber, which is a really cool theme because, of course, what happened in the events of the last movie, there was some tension there. But right. she she mends together this lightsaber or was it her or was it Leia that mended the lightsaber? That's my question. I don't think they really clarify that. Um, <laughs> you should probably just pretend like whatever you remember from the last Jedi was just a fever dream that may or may not have happened in this uh, movie's continuity. Cause there's, there's a fair bit of retconning there. So I wasn't dwelling on that. Uh, there was no time to dwell on that. Uh, somehow or another, it got fixed and Ray herself doesn't feel worthy of it. That's all we need to know. All right. So while we're on the <laughs> subject of Luke's sure. lightsaber, the line that Moz so greatly delivers and leaves fans on the edge of their seats and makes right. us like, Oh, I really want to hear that story. We don't mm-hmm. get to hear the story and how she found Luke's lightsaber. No, 
Nope. That's a story for another day. If, if this movie is moving at this pace, we're not stopping to, to hear stories of Maz's past adventures, whatever JJ Abrams had hoped Maz was going to turn into in this trilogy, mm-hmm. she got totally sidelined and now there's just no more room for her. So she's really just uh, an exposition bot. You know, she's there to tell you sort of what Leia's doing when Leia can't yeah. mouth the words because she just can't mouth the words. Yeah. Uh, that's really all Maz is doing in this movie. So yeah, we can't expect much else out of her. Now, I thought that that was a very interesting way to use Maz because she has the closest relationship with the with the original trio because right. she tells Han to go back to Leia. She knew enough about Luke, so we know that her roots are deep in this in this relationship with the three of them. So that was an interesting way to handle a circumstance that is, you know, unavoidable because mm-hmm. they don't have Carrie Fisher on set of this movie at any time. And uh, so with that tragedy, it was it was really interesting to see that Abrams was like, OK, let's use Maz to kind of narrate everything that Leia is doing. So it, it was it was interesting. I I enjoyed how they handled it. I enjoyed that Maz was always there with Leia and knew what she was doing and ultimately knew the end of right of how, or at least how it was going to end for Leia when she walked away to reach Ben one last time. Uh, I thought all that was fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think she was set up to sort of be a surrogate for Yoda in these new movies. Cause we know that she does have a connection to the force and we know that she's a thousand years old or whatever it is. She's been running the bar for a thousand years. She's probably older than that. Um, so she was supposed to be the wise old sage who was going to be able to step in and point our heroes in the right direction when they were having crisis of conscience and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, it just, it, it never happened. So <laughs> it is what it is. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. Every time Leia was on screen, even though there's a part of me that knows, okay, I, I can see how this was probably a conversation with Han and I can see how this was, you know, I can see where this was coming from, from force awakens, but I was willing to set that aside and try and take it in the spirit that it was intended mm-hmm. because that if nothing else, that was an attempt to do right, right. by the character and by Carrie Fisher. And, uh, I, I respect the try. And even though it's not flawless, it's as good as we were going to get. And I appreciate that they took the time to do it. So yes, if they need Moz to fill in the gaps, <laughs> you know, and explain kind of how things are unfolding, I'll get on board with that because they gave us as much of princess Leia in this movie as they possibly could. So I'll give them high marks for that. Well, and then we get the, the rest of the story. Basically, uh, Finn and Poe had gotten some tips from a first order spy who was, Mm. or resisted spy who was spying on the first order, who was high ranks in the first order. And they confirm that Palpatine has survived and that he's hiding out on a planet of Exabol or a fortress on Exabol. And that the only way to get there is through this wayfinder, or as I like to call it, a Sith navigation device. So we have the Sith navigation device, which would lead them there. And Ray has been studying the book, so I like that, that that she knew about this Wayfinder, that she had heard about it before because she had read the the ancient Jedi texts. And Ray, Finn, and Poe go off on the adventure together. I I this is another setting that I loved. I loved this trio together. I felt like this was what JJ Abrams wanted from the beginning, was mm-hmm. this this new trio together. And I I loved every second of this part. And then they go to the the desert planet where the Sith worshiper was taking this relic and had right. one, uh, one of the wayfinders with him, or knew the location of the wayfinder rather. Yes. And then 
who's there. And I, I thought this was great too, uh, that the person that helps him is of course Lando. And I loved his reveal. I thought his reveal was amazing. I felt emotional as soon as he took off his mask and said that a Wookiee stands out in the crowd. That was just all great. I loved all, every bit of that. It was emotional knowing that one, our Carrie Fisher is gone and in the film, Han Solo is gone. So Lando never really had that that goodbye. And so it makes it all more emotional when when Chewie greets Lando here. So I, I really enjoyed that. Uh, sure. I thought it was a very weird. Um, what's it called? Uh, the the space burning man. I thought that was a little <laughs> interesting. But hey, sure. it, uh, everything else I loved about this portion. Yeah, I had no problem with how they worked Lando into the movie. Um we accept a lot of conveniences on how the, the galaxy is so small that people just bump into other people. <laughs> you know, like we, we accept a lot in, in star Wars that way, but no, I was fine with it. I was happy to see him back. I think Billy D Williams mustered every ounce of, uh, enthusiasm and energy he could to, to try and revitalize the role. And I, I think he handled himself really good. It's, it's fun. It's fun. We, we, we love bringing back the, the characters that we know and love. And if we have an opportunity to do it, I'm glad that they, they took the time to, to bring him in. He wasn't really pivotal to anything in this movie that couldn't have been done by some other character, mm-hmm. but Hey, I would have rather seen Lando, you know, uh, serving the, the role of pointing them in the right direction to get to the MacGuffin to get to the next MacGuffin. Um, yeah, I, I love Lando. This was fine. I'm all good. Uh, and this, to me was a fun planet. I like the idea of sort of just this jubilant race that that's having, uh, you know, a festival that harkens back to maybe like what you would see, uh, an Indian festival where they have all the, uh, you know, the, the, the colored powders and you know, just the, yeah, there is something very fun about that. It's not something we've seen too much in, in star Wars. So I'm, I'm okay with this. The, this was another scene where I thought, oh, you know what? This is some good Star Wars here, right? Like we've built a new world. Uh, we've got a, a great location here to have some, you know, some, some fun adventure. And my only, my only critique of it is it just felt like we just moved so quick. Uh, you know, from the time that uh, we see Lando to him pointing them to the Forbidden Desert or whatever, it's like three shots and they're on the bikes and gone. And I don't, I just, I like, I like these set pieces to linger a little bit and, yeah. and give us a, a bit more of the world. That's my only critique, but I think it was a fun world to visit and I love Lando. So all good. Yeah. So we hear that Lando of course was tracking down these relics with Luke at one point, which would be, uh, which is something we saw. And mm-hmm. uh, if you played battlefront two, that was one of the themes of the primary story was that Lando and Luke were kind of running off together for a short portion of it. Uh, this would be something that would be great to see in form of maybe a Sebastian Stan as Luke Skywalker and a Glover, re, you know, sure. taking on his role as Lando again. Uh, probably won't happen anytime soon, but that would just be great to see. I'm sure we're going to see those type of uh, side journeys for the time being uh, through the comics. That seems to be the route that they're going right now for little tiny missions like that. But it would be very cool to see in a live action. One of the things that we also get introduced on this planet is that that force connection between Ray and Kylo was a bit stronger than we originally thought. Mm-hmm. Now we've we've seen it, and it was kind of teased in The Last Jedi that they could even physically uh, or have a physical encounter uh, through this connection because at one point, you know, their fingertips touched and they saw whatever it is that they claimed that they saw. 
which in my opinion, I believe that they both saw versions of the same timeline because we saw that, or Kylo said, I, you know, at the end, I saw you standing with me. Well, he, that, that did sure. it really happen. Um, and then Ray was just like, well, no, I saw Ben standing with me, which also really happened. Uh, mm. so I thought that that was a very interesting take on it. I, a lot of people had problems that they could have a, a lightsaber duel with through this force connection. So how did you feel about that? I was 100% okay with it. Mm-hmm. And the more I watched this movie, the more I realized that there was a big missed opportunity to use a lot of the stuff that they established in the last Jedi to maybe even greater effect than they mm-hmm. did. But this is one thing that they got right. I think they missed some opportunities, but this one totally fine with, because if you watch in the last Jedi during one of their force Skype connections at the end of it, um, I believe Kylo Ren like looks at his glove or something and it's wet. Mm-hmm. I think it was his glove. I, I can't remember, but somewhere along the line, he had some remnant of her side of the connection with him after, you know, they logged off. So even though Ryan Johnson was really using that more in a, just a, as a, a visual flourish as, as a little bit of artistry to, to try and paint the idea that they have a really deep connection. And he doesn't explore it any further than that because to him, it is just a visual indication of the depth of their connection. Mm-hmm. Abrams takes that and he says, okay, well, that's, that's a, a foothold that we can build on. Right. And he used it to great effect. He, he solved a lot of plot problems. Like how was Kylo Ren going to track her down? He snatches the necklace right off her. Like, mm-hmm. great. You know, like that you're, you're expanding the, the lore you're building on something that has precedent that as soon as you think about it for a second, you're like, no, no, this isn't JJ Abrams, uh, playing fast and loose with the force. This is something that we've seen before. This is established. And it makes sense that as time goes on, their connection would be that much stronger. And, you know, like uh, to me, this was totally fine. This was the, the next obvious evolutionary step in what we saw in the last Jedi. So yeah. this is one of the things that I felt the movie got very right. And it, it, it gave us an opportunity for those two characters to interact and explore each other and understand each other at a more fundamental level than would have happened if they just, you know, she's being hunted and they just meet up for lightsaber battles mm-hmm. and there's no quiet moments where they're actually talking, you know, you needed that too. So great. This narratively, this helped so much. Yep. And Ray and Finn and Poe and 3PO, they get stuck in some quicksand, whatever you want to call <laughs> sure. it, where yep. they get, they encounter a nice uh, space snake, an, a, mm-hmm. a mean space snake, I, I guess. He's not and mean, he's just wounded. It, which was wounded, and that's why <laughs> yes. it was in a bad mood. And then you yeah. had Ray use her healing powers. Now this right here, I enjoyed, and as soon as I saw it, I said, oh. That's why we got chapter seven a little bit early because we had to see baby Yoda do it so that people had some sort of background Mm -hmm. that this was a thing because I think it was touched on in in one of the animated shows and it was just briefly kind of it was just there and then it was gone and being honest not to there's not a there is a huge portion but not everyone in the fan base has watched those shows I would say more people have watched the Mandalorian and have seen this is a real force power that even someone who's not properly trained in the force could pull off 
And uh, I thought that that was just that was a really neat uh, connection there. We see it on the big screen now. There's going to be no complaints about it when it's seen later on. Uh, that was just really neat. And then immediately we have the Knights of Ren. I have to give them the benefit of the doubt on this. I did want to see more of the Knights of Ren. I wanted to see them be more sinister than they were. It would have been nice to see them maybe helping out Kylo Ren on Mustafar and see kind of how deadly they were because we mostly just get the intimidation factor from them. We hear mm-hmm. about them in The Force Awakens. They are referenced, or I don't even know if they're referenced a single time in The Last Jedi. But then this one, we see them for the first time. I was super excited about that. This was common knowledge that they were going to be introduced and they don't have a lot to do. They capture Chewie (laughs) off screen. Right. And they do some other things off screen. We hear uh, stormtroopers making a comment about them, about basically how, oh yeah, that's them. You know, we should stand back because they're, they're really mean. Mm -hmm. And then we see them in a final battle, which was really cool. I appreciated that. But yeah, I was kind of just lost. They're just, you know, they're just there, and we just have to accept that they had some really cool adventures that we never saw. They got phasmid. Yeah. Uh, great character design. These were set up in the first movie with at least, you know, the fans hoped to get great payoffs from them. And the 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 harsh reality of editing down a movie <laughs> got them sidelined, similar to what we saw with Phasma. Um, it happens. I think that this is a symptom of a really bloated convoluted script that was going in way too many directions and just really needed to focus on where's the story, you know, and work around that. So you don't have all these peripheral things that are getting people excited that don't get paid off. Yep. <laughs> you know, like we've at this point in the movie, we've had Finn say to Ray on a couple of occasions, Ray, I got to tell you something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, never happens, you know, like, and, and I don't know if that's just because the movie got hacked down so much that, there was maybe supposed to be more of a payoff to that. And at the end of it, Abram said, well, we don't have time for it. So we'll leave it ambiguous and people will just sort of fill in the blanks and they'll assume that maybe he was going to say that he's force sensitive because we get hints of that. Or maybe he's going to say he loves her and it's better left unsaid. Like, I feel like a lot of what we see in the movie are the, the, (laughs) the jetsam and flotsam of, of other, uh, portions of the movie that got jettisoned that are just kind of floating around and, and haven't quite dissolved. And you're just getting little hints of where else they would have gone if this movie had a four hour runtime. Uh, and I think that's what we saw with the Knights of Ren. Well, this is a, a good segue kind of about Finn and Ray. So we see that, yes. that Ray and Kylo have a nice little force tug of war, which mm-hmm. ends with the uh, force lightning coming out of Ray's hands and causing the ship to explode. She believes she's killed Chewie. So this is really what I think happens here because immediately, not immediately, but later on about 15 minutes into the film, we get, of course, C-3PO. He can't read the Sith speech on the dagger because it was against his program. And so they had to go back and basically reboot him, which was really emotional because you think that he's not going to remember his friends, but he's willing to do it. Big moment for C-3PO because he's (laughs) the big chicken of the entire saga. And he's willing to get his memories erased and possibly never get them again. And, you know, there's that emotional thing with R2, like you are my best friend <laughs> the best I've ever had. It makes you tear up because that's a, you know, kind of fan service there. But he, he makes that sacrifice and is able to read the speech. But one of the things that, that I am almost positive is touched on and not enough. And I see the issue, but I think it is referenced 
when Ray finds out she's a Palpatine. Mm-hmm. I truly, and I will defend this until I'm told otherwise by someone that matters more. I truly <laughs> believe that Leia told Finn that Ray was a Palpatine, and that is what Finn was going to tell her. And this mm. is why. So we get okay. in, in in Bloodline. So in the book Bloodline, Leia is struggling with the uh, with the Republic accepting her as a Skywalker because they know that, that she was Darth Vader's daughter. This became public knowledge at that yes. point. Yeah, and we know that she knew about it. And when Ray has an encounter with the Force Ghost Luke, which I also loved, I loved this whole scene with Luke. But when she has that encounter. Luke tells her, which is the one thing that Ben uh, never really did in in the original trilogy. Like you could have just told Luke that he was <laughs> person. The Force Ghosts are always. Well, that's why Luke does it. He he got screwed over so many times by Obi Wan and Yoda. He's like, I'm just gonna play it straight, right? Like, I, there's there's no from a certain point of view with Luke. <laughs> and and so Luke tells her that yeah, Leia knew about it, and she and basically implies you know she's keeping it from you because you're you're scared of yourself. So I I truly do think that that is what Poe or that is what Finn was going to tell Ray. I don't think it was anything really to do with force sensitive uh, sensitivity. I think he was as force sensitive as uh, I forget his name, blind karate guy from Rogue One. Sure, um, cheer at Mway. Yeah. Yeah. And so we have uh, we have that. So I, I completely think that's what it was. I think that because he was not comfortable with telling Poe. So that that was my first clue uh, mm-hmm. after I watched yeah. the film. So he was not comfortable telling Poe because Poe would have responded the way that Leia would it was fearful of because Poe, he responded that way in The Last Jedi. Maybe he learned his lesson. Maybe he didn't. But I think that if if Poe were to realize that Ray was a Palpatine, his instinct, which would have been the right instinct would be, well, maybe you shouldn't be the one to track him down. Yeah. He'd sideline her. He wouldn't put her in a position where she could undermine the resistance. And, and so I think that's what it was. And I think that's why Finn was keeping it from Poe. And I think that's why Finn was only going to tell her in a, you know, they both thought that they were going to die and it didn't matter if Poe were to hear it. So I think that's what it was because when Ray mentions on the ship how she's afraid of her power basically and how she's now 100% in and tracking down Palpatine and killing him he makes the comment of well that's not you this doesn't sound like you and then he almost once again kind of tells her and so I really think that's what it was is that he's just like well you know you're Palpatine Leia told me uh yeah so that's that's kind of my stance on it (laughs) would have been nice at the end there for Finn to tell Ray that because then this would all be solidified but it's it's sure. one of those things that they didn't have enough time on it's a classic JJ Abrams thing you know where you have going back to his time with Lost where you have all yeah. these implications but we're kind of stuck at the end with thinking yeah. on our own here more questions and answers uh that is as as good a theory as I've heard on it and Honestly, it's the one that I think tracks the best. Like I think from what is actually in the movie, you could have that interpretation. I think that probably fits as organically as anything you could come up with. So, uh, I'm fine with it. My problem is why, mm-hmm. why the, why add that melodrama and complication to a story that doesn't need it? Cause there's no payoff, right? Like if he tells her, okay, well then that would be something, but they don't explore it. So why do it at all? Like right. what? What other than just a mirror that scene in 
Return of the Jedi where Han's like, well, who could you tell? Could you tell Luke? Like there's a little bit of, um, uh, you, you know, like between him and Poe, you know, Poe asks, well, you know, what is it? And he's like, well, I can't tell you. And, and it kind of, it, it, it frustrates Poe a little bit, like just to create some kind of shallow drama between our, our three protagonists. Um, if that's all they were doing with it, then you didn't need it. Uh, I'm okay with my heroes being heroes. You know, they've got bigger fish to fry. They don't care about these small little interpersonal foibles. You know, there's no time for that in 16 hours, the galaxy is going to blow up. So I don't know. Like, it's just the fact that it was in there at all Mm -hmm. feels really, really hacky. And I don't mean hacky. Well, it is hacky. It's, it's bad writing, but hacky in the sense that they hacked out whatever the payoff was supposed to be. And so all these little vestigial bits don't add up to anything except distraction and frustration. And, uh, this is, this is where the movie frustrates me in just how disjointed and inorganic so much of it is because they pared it down to almost nothing. Yeah. And I'm okay with it because it was almost immediate as soon as it's revealed to her that she's a Palpatine via Kylo Ren. It w- For me, for some reason, at that point and at the point where Luke's talking to her, that's where my mind went. And it was sure. almost, I could have sworn that that was in the movie, that it was said that it basically laid out that this is what Leia told Finn. So for me, I was okay with that. But then going back and reading it, that's what a lot of people, because it threw me off whenever I was getting into the news. And people were, you know, theorizing that Finn was going to tell her that he was force sensitive or that he loved her. And there was arguments about that. And my input to it all was, well, wasn't it just that he was going to tell her that he knew about her lineage? Because it was so, because it was so, uh, I don't know what it was about the film. I need to go and watch it a couple more times to see if I can track where it was. It just made sense to you that that's what it would be. The problem is a movie is supposed to unfold its narrative competently enough that you don't have to sit there and build headcanon to figure out what you're seeing on screen. You shouldn't have to do that mental work. Movies are good when they're challenging, but not challenging because they're intentionally leaving important gaps out of the narrative challenging because they want you to, you know, uh, put the pieces together. And in this case, I don't think they gave us all the pieces that we needed to put together. And that's why it's frustrating and not satisfying to have the narrative unfold. Um, yeah, I just, it's just the editing. It's, yeah. it's gotta be the editing, yeah. <laughs> but we, we got a whole lot of movie to get through and we're already almost an hour into this. So, uh, uh, stop letting me harp on all this minutia. <laughs> let's, let's uh, get to the meat of this. So I don't think we really need to touch on the importance of the Death Star wreckage. That was something immediate. People were still theorizing, oh, it's not the Death Star wreckage. Of course it was. It was always (laughs) Death Star wreckage. I mean, even going back to Abrams' concept art, which is why I think a lot of my justification for it was that I I saw a lot of the concept art from The Force Awakens. And, of course, Mm -hmm. the underwater uh, Death Star wreckage was a part of it. We had the Force ghost uh, of Anakin, which we didn't get to see. A little disappointed about, uh, but some of these other ideas that were introduced through the concept art, I feel that J.J. Abrams really did what he wanted to do with the film. There are definitely circumstances, and this is where people need to be real. No matter how you felt about The Last Jedi or how you feel about Ryan Johnson, there were definitely concerns from even Disney, and there were some stuff that that had to be not necessarily corrected, but you can tell that some of the things were kind of 
cut back on. We didn't get to see Abrams, in my opinion, his full plan that he had from Force Awakens, but I think we saw a lot of it. I think we saw the Death Star wreckage. I truly do think that Palpatine always had a a place at the table in this Mm. and that he always was going to be a part of it. I really do think that. Um, of course, if he's asked about it today, he's going to say, oh, yeah, of course. It was I always had this plan. So we're never going to get the real answer unless Bob Iger wants to come out and say, actually, no, this wasn't the thing. It was actually going to be Snoke the whole time. But as of right now, this is what we have. I loved Palpatine coming back. I did have problems with his return, but I liked I liked that this was that it was the classic Sith versus the classic Jedi, so to speak. You know, we had this standoff with with Palpatine. We saw him probably more powerful than we ever have seen him before, which sure. was really cool. Because if you think about it, we had such little time with Palpatine in full Palpatine fashion. We get his lightsaber duel with Yoda, which is cool. And then we don't really, you know, that's that. Like, we have that, and then we have the Return of the Jedi. And other than that, we don't really see a lot about Palpatine. We just see this. We hear the stories about him and we have kind of our head cannons about him and we know he's powerful, but we didn't get to see a lot. So I really did enjoy Palpatine's story arc in this film with its flaws and how it, how he was there. <laughs> I got past that really quick because I was thinking, okay, he's here. This is what he's doing. And from that point, I was all on board with it. So. We see that Snoke was of zero importance. We talked about that as soon as this trailer came out, or as soon as uh, Star Wars Celebration happened, right. and we get the reveal right away that Palpatine is back. That was kind of what we were thinking, is that Snoke was a puppet all along. Uh, I have to say, though, I have to stick with my gut a little more often, because you had me bought on the Dark Ray being a, <laughs> a clone theory, and my original one was, no, this is Dagobah all over again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, no, you were right. You the clone, it. it was a good one, and you you sold me on it. But then, as I watched it, I realized, ah, oh, I was right from the first one. No, and uh, probably best that they don't introduce a, a whole another <laughs> level of complexity to to Ray's situation. Uh, yeah, I think Clone Ray would have just been more than this movie could have handled. It was already overstuffed. So, um, I I don't think I was as hot on her being a Palpatine as maybe you were, but uh, I'm glad that. Ultimately, her motivations were fairly clear in this movie. Like once she understood that, uh, the idea that she's grappling with her own darkness and the the fact that she she wants a name, but just in desperation to have a family doesn't mean she should embrace any family because mm-hmm. some some family members are not worth embracing. Uh, so it did open up some good opportunity to, um understand where Ray's at emotionally and, and what's propelling her forward. So there was some benefit to bringing Palpatine back and by making her a Palpatine, but I don't think that I'm going to, uh, endorse, uh, your notion that a lot of this was Abram's original intention. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we have seen a lot of the concept art from force awakens and we know that he had a lot of off the wall, sort of just like, visual motifs that he was in love with that he wanted to try and work into the movie. Like we know that originally there was some notion of Luke's severed hand with the, the lightsaber in it floating through space. And that's how we were going to open the film. Like he went through a a lot of 
weird ideas to get to where the force awakens landed. And we know that, yes, there was supposed to be something where Kylo Ren was trying to find Sith artifacts or remnants of his grandfather. And he was exploring the wreckage of the death star. So we know that that as sort of a, a visual backdrop for something cool and star Wars, he was in Abrams mind, but I don't think that that automatically means that he had the majority of this narrative sorted out. I think a lot of this was mandated from on high. And I think a lot of it is just the necessity of him being brought in to try and write the ship and get the fans back on board. I think that's why we see so much stuff that's familiar to star Wars and that is a callback and is revisiting past characters. And the fact that this, this movie, well, as much as the other two and, and maybe even, uh, you know, more so, um, it is kind of a super hyperified version of return of the Jedi in many ways, you know, it does culminate with this showdown with Palpatine and then a space battle that seems lost, you know, to dishearten Ray, you know, as he opens up the, the, the heavens above her so she can see just like he did with Luke. Um, you know, so I, I don't feel like back in 2013, 14, when they were developing force awakens, uh, this was where they were really planning on going with it. I can't get behind that. Cause it just seems so disjointed and, uh, just so forced. Uh, if, if they were really planning on bringing back Palpatine, they would have found clever little winks, right. subtle things to start driving that narrative earlier in the the trilogy. It wouldn't have just been the opening crawl to this movie that just says, okay, everything that happened up to now, it doesn't really matter. Cause here's the, the real story. Uh, that is too abrupt for it to have been the plan from day one. Uh, but I mean, we can speculate all day. Uh, it just, yeah, it, it didn't feel like this was as well thought out as I would have liked it to have been. Yeah. And getting into the meat of the climax here, we have okay. the battle between, uh, Ray and Kylo, their last battle, which Ray takes advantage of Kylo's <laughs> little, uh, hesitation there and sure. stabs him in the stomach, but makes up for it in the end. So she had her moment of weakness. She she heals him. We get the the nice little moment where she says, I would have taken your hand. I would have taken Ben Solo's hand. Uh, really emotional stuff. And oh my gosh, I was completely shocked. I was not expecting to see Harrison Ford with yeah. new dialogue in this. Right. And it makes that bridge scene even more emotional. Because sure. now we see... The what Ben truly wanted. So we see what Kylo Ren wanted in that bridge scene. And then we see his other half, what Ben Solo wanted in that bridge scene. And, oh, we get Ben Solo. So classic redemption arc. I've always kind of been against that for Kylo Ren because I always wanted this more sinister character. But the way it was played out, and I don't know if it was the shock factor from seeing Harrison Ford come back uh, that made me buy into it. But it made me emotional. And I accepted Mm -hmm. it. And I love that he chases Ray down to Exable, even though she first goes uh, and tries to throw a lightsaber into the fire. Right. That whole scene with Luke. I think this was a version of Luke that Abrams wanted because Mark Hamill teased back uh, when The Last Jedi was getting a lot of the criticism. He kind of talked about how, you know, when Abrams got him to sign on, it was out of the idea that Luke was just going to be this uber powerful force wielder and he was going to be lifting up, you know, things far bigger than rocks and just doing a bunch of things with his mind versus having a, a major lightsaber duel. And so we see this, it's a major callback, of course. You know, we have the do or do not, there is no try, and he, as a force goes, lifts the Mm -hmm. X-Wing out of the water, which still works 
you know, these X-Wings must be built very well if they still work after being in water for decades. But well, hey, they're airtight, right? They, yeah. they have to function in space. So, yeah. hey, why not underwater? That is uh, true. We saw it come out of Dagobah, so you got to accept that they're uh, impervious to water penetration. I'm I'm okay with that. But yeah, this was these were, were a couple of, of really competent scenes. And this is, again, where I will applaud the movie where it gets things right. The redemption of Ben Solo, that's fine. To to take the scene with Han Solo and recontextualize it and impose new meaning on The Force Awakens. So when you see that scene, you're going to be like, I understand what's in their head. That's great. You know, you're enriching the, you know, the fabric of the the trilogy that way. Good storytelling and to reuse the dialogue with new purpose. You know, uh, all of that served its purpose very well. This is very competent storytelling. I'm okay with all that. Uh, Harrison Ford, obviously he's a crowd pleaser seeing him back. There's, there's no downside to any of that. Totally fine with it. I love the idea that at least this was my interpretation. It is open to interpretation. I love the idea that at least what I thought was happening was Leia sensed that Ray was in peril. She was fighting Kylo Ren and Leia worried that Kylo Ren was going to best Ray. And that was going to be, our last hope would be cut down. So mm-hmm. I thought what Leia was doing, because she had already said in the previous movies, like, I know, you know, mm-hmm. Ben's lost there. You know, like she says that Luke and her have that little exchange, you know, I, I can't save him or whatever. She understood that he was beyond redemption, or at least that's where I thought her head was at. Mm-hmm. So in this scene, I thought what she was doing was reaching out with the force to try and distract him enough to give Ray the upper hand with the, understanding that most likely it was going to give Ray the opportunity to defeat him and mm-hmm. effectively kill her son. And she was willing to make that move for the greater good because she did think her son was lost. Yeah. And so the fact that she, she made that sacrifice, she sacrificed herself and she sacrificed any hope of redemption for her son for the sake of the galaxy is about as noble a thing as a, anyone could do. So I mm-hmm. felt like that was a, a fitting way for her to go out. Yeah. And then for ultimately that maneuver to not just have Ray win the day and best him, but also to actually redeem him. So yep. Leia's sacrifice served two purposes. It, it made sure our, our hero was able to win the day and it got her son back. I don't know. All of that felt very poetic and felt very subtle and appropriate for star Wars. I loved all of that. That's mm-hmm. great. That's great. Loved it. Just wish some of the stuff surrounding it was, wasn't so so convoluted. Um, but that was a good moment. And then, like you said, the stuff with Luke as well. Um, I hope that JJ Abrams had the class to call Ryan Johnson and say, look, we, we wrote up a scene and I don't want you to take it the wrong way. You know, right. we're trying to present the idea that Luke is in a different place, you know, that he's come out of his funk and he's, yeah. you know, he's regained his footing as a Jedi. And so he's going to have more reverence for his lightsaber than he would have at the beginning of the last Jedi. Don't take this as us poo pooing what you did in the last Jedi. Just take it as part of the story we're trying to tell and understand it's all good natured. I I hope he called Ryan Johnson because otherwise that scene just plays out like (laughs) screw you, Ryan Johnson. How dare you throw my lightsaber away? I put Luke on that Island to be a master, not to be a chump. Uh, so I don't know. Like, I, I, I hope, I hope people were classy. That's all I well, can say. But the scene itself was fun. 
you know, you have the dialogue in The Force Awakens. The first spoken dialogue is this will begin to make things right. People read into that <laughs> as if it was a sure. sly, you know, remark. Yeah, a little towards, jab at the prequels or whatever. Yeah. the prequels. Yeah. And then this one, I'm more bought in that this was a retcon to Johnson because his comment, this is not the way to treat a weapon of the Jedi. <laughs> right. So I do think that this was a retcon. I think it it more so came from upstairs than from yeah. Abrams himself. I think that this is one of those things to where I think, you know, Lucasfilm was thinking, okay, you know what? We do have to admit there is a huge part of the fan base that did not appreciate how Luke was handled in The Last Jedi. That's a fact. That it, it just is. And so no matter how you feel about it, and it works for both sides. Because both sides, you appreciate what happened in The Last Jedi. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you have that movie and you have this movie that doesn't really contradict it as much. But then you have at the end, Luke ending in the place that people would have wanted him to end. You know, this isn't the way to treat a weapon of a Jedi. And then, of course, even though in all of his, uh, you know, emo phase on on the (laughs) island, he still had the burial for his sister's lightsaber, which is worthy of a Jedi, you know, kind of kept away and still holding on to it because her last wish or basically her prophecy to him was that someone else is going to pick up this lightsaber. Right. So he kept it away, even though he, he cut himself off from the force. So I think that, that, that there was a little bit of retconning with, with Luke here. And that's really the only place that I feel like it was major. Uh, mm-hmm. We can, you know, there's, I don't think there is really anything to say about Rose in this film because she had <laughs> nothing to do. You can read into that however you want. I don't know if that was necessarily a retcon to how people felt about Rose in The Last Jedi. But you never know. Uh, there definitely was not enough time in this movie to have Rose be a major right. part. And that's yeah. that, to me, that's the most important thing was that there just wasn't time, and so that's how I'm viewing it. Because I didn't hate Rose in the Last Jedi, uh, but I think that that I I think it could be, and I think there's a there's enough foundation there for people to come up and say, oh yeah, Abrams had to retcon this, and I don't sure. think we should blame it all on Abrams. If you feel that way, I think that Disney had a part to play in that. So well, I don't I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't call either of those retconning so much as just sort of closing the door on mm-hmm. a storyline that Abrams just didn't have time to deal with. Uh, in, in Luke's case, I don't, I don't see it as being a problem. I think the interpretation that you should take from that is that we have two different Lukes. We had Luke that was despondent and brokenhearted and just at his lowest. And so, yes, he's going to be the cynic and he is going to throw his lightsaber. That version of Luke would have, but he goes through some growth and Mm -hmm. some redemption of his own in that he recognizes that there's bigger issues in the galaxy than just his small feelings. And he comes back and does something uh, glorious to help the resistance. So yes, the version of Luke that we're going to see in this movie, isn't going to be the version of Luke in the last Jedi. So would he have different feelings about a lightsaber? Yeah. When, when you come out of a funk and you're not depressed or whatever, the, all of the, you know, the, the dark things that you say when you're at your lowest, that's not your truth. You know, once you work through it, that's not who you are. Once you're, you know, once you're, uh, you've steadied yourself. So I had no problem with that. I didn't see it as a retcon. I just, I just hope that you know, they were nice to Ryan Johnson and let him know that this isn't uh, this. We're not, we're not intentionally trying to create issues between us. As far as the Rose thing, you had a busy story with too much going on. And 
like you had said earlier, I think Abrams was in love with the idea of the trio that he established in the force awakens, even though Poe was supposed to die by the time Abrams figured out that he really liked Poe as being kind of the, yeah. the third piece of their, their, their new ensemble. Um, I think he just really wanted to see them together and he understood the fans wanted to see them together and Rose just wasn't part of that story. So they had the sideliner. They needed a, a quick little bit of dialogue. Oh, you know, I, I got, Leia gave me some homework. I'm sorry. I can't go on this adventure. Yeah. I gotta, gotta hang back and, uh, study some star destroyers. It's, it's easy. Uh, but I understand you, you can't have everything going on or else you end up with a movie like the rise of Skywalker. So yeah. yes, uh, I'm, I'm okay with all of that. Yeah. And I loved that that we get the flashback of Luke and Leia training together because that was something that was always just headcanon. We had zero mm-hmm. confirmation. We had stuff in Legends, of course, that had them training together and her having her own lightsaber. We had right. that in Legends, but not in canon. And it was always something that was headcanon for a lot of people is that they like to believe that Leia was doing this. And she, for some reason, decided to throw it away for politics rather than and joining a new order maybe she was tempted whatever it was but we finally get to see that so that idea gets laid uh laid to rest but we get ben solo who wants to help out ray and he returns to exabol and then we get the great battle between ben and the knights of ren I thought this was great. I thought that as Ray was being tempted, she I think she was going to cut him down. I think I think she was going to slash Palpatine and take it in inadvertently, you know, take his place really. Uh but I think that's what was going to happen. I think she was going to I think she was going to cut him down and become the Sith Palpatine in his place and then she realized that Ben was there, a nice little emotional thing. And I loved that Ben finally gets to hold the lightsaber that he was so desperately wanting. (laughs) But in this circumstance, he wasn't even asking for it, which is just, you know, it's poetic. So that's one of the poetic things. Uh, Every time he desired it for selfish reasons, he never got it. But then it was finally gifted to him to use. I thought that was very cool and a very nice, uh, very nice fight scene we got between Ben Solo and the Knights of Ren. So all that was 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 very awesome in my opinion, mm-hmm. and then we get the two teaming up against Palpatine, which was also uh, a great callback, or not callback, but a great uh, just visual thing to see. But okay, I am a little bit lost on the Force dyad thing. Do you have more on that? And well, this was a remnant of a version of the script that had a lot more time to establish that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we got in the dialogue from Palpatine, I would be willing to bet this was a good portion of some of the pickups and reshoots and just rehacking of the, the third act. Uh, cause it, it seems like <sighs> magically <laughs> the situation worked out the way Palpatine wanted it to, even though going into it, it didn't seem like they established that. Palpatine even knew that the dyad thing was a possibility and he was just kind of like taken aback like oh great Mm -hmm. this is even better than what I was hoping to do which is kind of a goofy way to present the ultimate puppet master of the galaxy Uh, I don't think they even should have said dyad I don't think that should have been a thing I just I think at a certain point he should have realized that they weren't going to be turned and in the same way that when he realized okay Luke's not going to be turned so be it I can just be done with you and make sure that you're not a threat to me. He says, okay, well, you know, if they're not going to rule in my stead, or if, you know, I'm not gonna be able to get what I want out of the situation, then I'm going to 
extract what I can from them. And if they'd established that the reason why Palpatine is still alive and this version of Palpatine has lived for hundreds of years or whatever it is, is because he has this ability. If that's something they had established earlier, maybe, you know, you saw his acolytes bring him a tribute and he rejuvenates, you know, one, his pinky finger from the force juice in it. You know, if they established that earlier in the movie, then the idea that, you know what, if I'm not going to get my heir to take the throne, then I'm, I'm taking it back myself, right. you know? Like if it, if I'm not going to live on through you, I'm going to live on through me. That to me would have been a much more straightforward way to present it. And you don't need the whole dyad stuff because it's just, it's a, it's a new terminology that has no context that makes no sense to anyone. Unless, you know, again, you're willing to step back from the movie and try and build some headcanon to explain what that is or why that's a thing or why any of them should know, you know, what a dyad is or, or what it could mean for Palpatine. I, again, needlessly convoluted because there's so much other plot that got hacked out of the movie that these little tiny hints of what else they were maybe going to go with are still sort of floating around and they're not connecting with anything. And I feel like the whole third act, the confrontation with Palpatine could have been a much cleaner, more satisfying affair if there wasn't so many twists and turns to it because it's all, you know, made up stupidity, right? Like there's no precedent for any of it. So why not make it something that just sort of, I don't know, that, that people can latch onto without all of this extra mental gymnastics to try and keep up with it. I so this was a big problem that I had with the movie, not that the visuals of it and the atmospherics and everything about that ending scene was sufficiently creepy and fun. And it's kind of what you would expect to see from a Sith. Yeah. There was a lot there to like visually, but everything coming out of everyone's mouth was just so awkward. Yeah. <laughs> and convoluted. And uh, yeah, it just doesn't feel like they, they, uh, yeah, just, they, they just didn't invest in what Palpatine could do or what his purpose was or what his mission was or what he wanted from Kylo Ren. So he just has to spell it all out at the end. And it still doesn't make any sense because they just right. twist and turn it whenever it seems convenient. Ugh. yeah, I wish, I wish they'd done a rewrite on this and just smoothed it all out. Yeah, that was, that was definitely an interesting thing. I was, <sighs> I was more okay with it because it was mentioned by Kylo before, but other than that, like nothing was really explained. It's just, they have a strong connection. They're twins in the force, basically, you know, uh, but other than that, we don't have a background. Now, the thing that I thought was, was a really cool, uh, a really cool portion of the scene was that when Ray thinks all is lost, she gets up and the voices, of Jedi's past have spoken to her. And this mm. is where we get a lot of cool connections. So we get, you know, there's Obi-Wan, there's Anakin, Hayden Christensen, didn't mm. return the way I wanted him to return, but we got his voice in there. Sure. Uh, but we have Anakin, we have Obi-Wan, we have, I believe, even Mace Windu. I heard at mm-hmm. one point Qui-Gon, and then yep. Ahsoka is the one that I felt like I was slapped in the face with her voice. Now, here's the thing. If we heard think, her voice, I think Kanan too. I think yeah, Kanan, Kanan too. That yeah. is right. Uh, so all these that are really cool and the things that we wanted from the the big ships is just kind of hearing their voices in right, the right. background, which we didn't get. I thought we did. Uh, I was thrown off by Zori's voice a little bit. I yeah, thought yeah. that might have been. Hera. I thought that was Ahsoka. Yeah. <laughs> I, I when when yeah when Zori comes in over the comms for a second, I thought that was Ahsoka. See, I thought it was Hera. I thought that okay. it was her on the ghost, but then it cut over to Zori. I'm like, oh, yeah. 
well, never mind. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, other than that, we, we you know we didn't get we get get that callback, but we got Ahsoka in the Force voice, and we got Kanan in the Force voice. Uh, we didn't get. Did we get Ezra? Do you know if you heard Ezra in there? I think it's only characters that we're presuming have merged with the Force that would that's, be talking. That's also what I'm thinking. Yeah, which, so I don't think they. I don't think they want to reveal whether Ezra's still around at this point. Which can get into some speculation that maybe we're going to see him again, and I hope maybe. so because there's so much there. But yeah, if we heard Ahsoka's voice, that means that she's uh, one probably one with the Force. So we're <laughs> going to have to see what happens with with her. Uh, because we don't have a conclusion to her story yet. Last time we saw her, she was just doing her normal Ahsoka stuff and mm-hmm. walking away. Yeah, but she's had a whole, you know, 30 years yeah. since the end of Rebels. So uh, she would be a, a pretty aged uh, mm-hmm. Jedi at this point. Or not Jedi, but you know what she is, whatever. <laughs> a former Jedi. Because uh, she's she's prequel era. So <laughs> she's she would be like, yeah, in her She'd 70s or 80s. Yeah. Um, yeah, th- this was fun. It-, it was nice that they did it subtly. Like for anyone who hasn't watched any of those shows, they don't have to, to understand, okay, these are the whispers of the mm-hmm. Jedi in the right. force. Okay, great. Yeah, that's cool. I-, I-, I like that. And that's established. Yeah. And you know, the first scene of the movie with Ray, where she's levitating the rocks, she's calling out, trying to learn how to commune with them. She's basically trying to learn the lesson that Yoda gave to Obi-Wan at the end of revenge of the Sith. Like I want you to learn how to commune with Qui-Gon and, you know, learn the, the deeper truths of the living force. Uh, so this is good. I, I, that all played really well to me. And I like the little moment of quiet where she has to steady herself and draw on you know, all of the goodwill in the universe to be able to stand back up and, and win the day. I'm fine with all that. I just, it was such a mess to get to this point. You know, that's, that's my only problem is it it didn't have to be that convoluted. Yeah. Well, she, she wins the day. Palpatine had a pretty aggressive death. It didn't look like it was very pleasant for him. And we definitely Mm -hmm. see him. We see his body diminish, or at least this body you know sure uh, hopefully it's the body <laughs> we, see, we see his body uh diminish in a very uh this was possibly the it, i mean it wasn't very bloody it, but it was a pretty it was pretty graphic for a star war i think it's the most graphic thing up there with anakin getting burned alive sure. uh, as far as how this is ending for him which of course he should die that way because he's palpatine but then we get the sacrifice, and this is what I meant earlier whenever I said the sacrifice that Anakin would have made. So we have mm. Ben Solo, who saves his loved one from dying. Gotcha. Which is the first time we have seen this actually happen, because when, you know, the healing stuff, it, it's been before death. This has been post-death. Ben Solo laid down his life, gave whatever force energy he had left to resurrect Ray. And was a really sweet, poetic end for Ben Solo. I know a whole lot of people are mad about how Ben Solo died. (laughs) They're mad that he died in the first place. However, I do have to say, I felt like if there was going to be a redemption arc, it was going to end with Ben Solo becoming one with the Force. Just like Anakin's redemption arc arc ended with him doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. The sacrifice is weighty. There's a lot of stuff that, uh, yeah, it it had to go down this way. I appreciated that. I liked seeing 
that whole thing. I wasn't a huge fan of the kiss. It felt a little forced to me, but <laughs> you know, it, it, it is what it is and it was sweet. Yeah. I, I liked, I liked this portion of it. The first time the kiss dropped, I, I think I actually like audibly laughed. Like, <laughs> where did that come from? I get that they have this forced connection and they've hinted that, you know, the, the emotional bond between them in the force is like so intertwined that it could almost be mistaken for romance. Like take my hand, join me. But it was always in the context of let's claim power and take over the galaxy or no leave power behind and come to the light side. It was always in the context of trying to redeem them from a force perspective, not from a love perspective or romantic love perspective. So the fact that just abruptly here, okay, he's been Ben for all of three seconds Mm -hmm. and you've decided that we need to kiss. Like, I don't know. Star Wars used to know how to do romance. (laughs) You know, they got it right in one trilogy and uh, yeah, we've now got two more trilogies behind us and they just haven't been able to crack that nut for me. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that they really established very well the idea that ultimately they were trying to pull each other to their side of the force because of a deeper romantic connection. I think there needed to be a bit more there. Right. Uh, you know, one Skype call with Kylo Ren's shirt off, I don't think is enough to, you know, build this epic romance for the ages. Uh, so again, trying to force a lot in there for the fans. I know there's a big contingent of fans that wanted the whole Raylo thing to happen and they got it. So I don't know. I don't know if it's just Abram saying, you know, we need to sprinkle in all of the fan service and all of the little things that people want to see. I don't know how we got there, but I, I feel like maybe it's just, again, a symptom of this movie moving too quick and not taking time to really breathe and do the deep character building that we need to understand their true motivations because this hit me out of left field. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, I, I think that was enough on the, the Raylo stuff because I, I do feel like that was forced, but we got it and mm-hmm. we got Ben Solo's sacrifice, which was really cool because he is the first Skywalker to keep a loved one from dying. I thought that yeah. was, see now that little bit of poetry, uh, that, that didn't quite register with me that, that is uh, a beautiful symmetry with what happened in the prequels. But um, yeah, I, I can respect that. If that's what they were actually going for was like, yeah. he, he finally cracked the code. Um, well, and he did it without it, His was not a selfish pursuit. Yeah. And, and to me, that's the argument as to why no one else was able to do it or that we know of. And it's because I think everyone else would have tried doing it out of a selfish desire. I can't have, have them die because then I'll be lonely. I mean, Anakin's mm-hmm. desire was I can't have Padme die because, you know, I'll be lonely and I can't right. live without her, whatever it is. Ultimately, which keeps him as Darth Vader and trying to, uh, according to some of the stuff that's going on in the VR series, <laughs> he's trying to bring her back. Right for selfish reasons. And so of course he's pulling from uh, the dark side of the force. And this was purely Kylo or Ben solo pulling from everything good in him and giving sure. all that up. So I thought that was, I thought that was very poetic. Uh, we returned to Tatooine for mm-hmm. a brief uh, 30 seconds. And we see the sun's set once again on this desert planet with the Skywalker looking off into the sun. Um, yeah, we got that. She decides to bury her lightsabers there. Now, I know a lot of people thought that that was awkward that she took on the name Skywalker. 
I think that was one of your theories was that now Skywalker is going to be kind of the name of the new Jedi or whatever it right, is. Yeah. So this, this, this definitely aligns more so with that, that this is the chosen name. She obviously can't walk around with the name Palpatine in the galaxy because people are going to know what that means. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, she had to take on the name and a name that more represents her. And that's obviously Skywalker. Leia was her mother and she had a deeper relationship with Leia towards the end. than you know, than she did at the beginning and she had that connection with Luke. And now that she's able to have the voices from Jedi past, you know, talk to her, that connection is going to be even deeper. So I liked all that. One of the things that people were confused about that I read was where did Ray get her Kyber crystal? And one of the things was brought up, like, wasn't Jedi you destroyed? That's not the only place for Kyber crystals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's not the only place you get Kyber crystals. We saw mm-hmm. they're, they're rich across the galaxy. We've seen them, uh, receive them from other places. Of course, we saw Ezra get his from his was just in, just a random temple you know that offered it up to him when he passed his test yeah so yeah you can get them from multiple places i appreciate that she uh turned her little metal staff into a lightsaber that um this movie left me unsatisfied with her story if i'm gonna be honest because now that it's been teased that she's doing this this i feel the exact same way that I felt after Return of the Jedi. I want to see more of what Luke's doing to rebuild the Order. Sure. And now I feel the same way with this. All right, Ray, let's let's go in 30 years. Let's see what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully we don't have to wait 30 years. If Disney Plus continues to perform well, maybe they can spin some of this off into a, a short-run series or something like that, which I think would be awesome. Yeah, well, let's watch Luke rebuild his Order. Let's watch Ray rebuild her Order. There's adventures to be had in all of that. Uh, yeah. So who knows where we go from here? Uh, <laughs> I, if, if I'm going to put my, uh, I don't know, my, my final word on kind of how this movie left off, I think the ending scene was perfectly fitting, you know, thematically it makes sense to go back to Tatooine, even though it doesn't really mean anything for Leia's so be it. It's, it's something that the audience understands is, uh, the heritage of the Skywalkers. And if she's trying to connect with this identity that she's going to assume for herself, it, it makes sense to put her in that position and see the twin sons that, you know, ultimately were the last thing that Luke remembered, you know, as he's <laughs> evaporating into the force. Um, yeah. Thematically, visually it all, it, it's great. It makes sense. It's a, a nice bookend on Ray's story to have her choose the type of identity and life that she wants to have, because when she starts her first story, she's, so caught up in the idea of waiting for her family to come back and get her that she's not willing to define who she is or go out and, you know, seek adventure or do anything meaningful because she's just trapped in this box of needing, you know, her family to come in and rescue her. And, uh, she's really kind of stunted by that. I gotta get back to Jakku. I gotta wait. I just gotta just live this, uh, you know, slaves existence. So the fact that at the end of this movie, she has been able to transcend that and she's found out some dark truths about her heritage and family and has learned that really ultimately, you know, family are the people that, you know, you, you choose to connect with and choose to love and choose to uh, identify with and emulate. That's all great. You know, if, if that's our takeaway, that that's fine. Uh, I feel like there was a whole lot of mess in between to get us to that point. And, and I think again, that's the shame of it. If they'd stopped and said, okay, here's our theme. Here's where we want Ray to end up and let, the intervening stories serve that a bit more. 
I don't think it would have felt maybe as tacked on to the end as, as it did. Um, yeah, I, I think they could have spelt all that out and made the, the story a lot more satisfying if it wasn't just at the end that she has this revelation of wanting to be, you know, something more than what her family will allow her to be. Uh, it, it, we didn't need to revisit that theme in the last 30 seconds. We could have been revisiting that over the last six hours, but yeah. anyways, <laughs> not my first and not my last quibble with this movie. <laughs> Well, this is definitely a lot of movie. I personally, at the end of it, I was happy. There were some things that I wasn't satisfied about, but there was a lot of things that I was satisfied about. There was a lot of things that I loved about it. I had fun throughout from start to finish. I had a smile on my face. There were a couple times that I teared up just because of uh, a lot of these callbacks, a lot of these fan service items that Abrams threw out there made me really emotional watching it. And I had a lot of, I had a lot of fun with it. And I definitely okay. see why people have issues with it. That is 100% there. That is real. Uh, some of these things are definitely major issues for some people that can't be solved through headcanon. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of movie here. And maybe one day we can get into more speculation pieces and dive deeper into it. Uh, maybe when there's something uh, that we're off on, maybe there's an off season from some of the shows that we can dive deeper into all of the films, maybe so we can just see where it goes and, and see what happens as this movie uh, continues in theater. I plan on watching it again uh, a few more times, hopefully before it leaves theaters and just enjoy as much as I can out of it while it's on the big screen. Mm hmm. Yeah, like I said, I think this is a movie that uh, if you are frustrated on first viewing, do go see it again. Mm -hmm. Slap down your money, get another ticket, because once you know what you're in for and you're not worried about just keeping up with the plot, you can invest a little bit more and, and pull a little bit more out of what seems to be going by so quickly the first time. So it is definitely a more satisfying watch on the second time. Mm -hmm. And I'll probably, you know, head back to the theater and watch it again and see if it continues to grow on me. And I do totally understand why some people just are really digging it. You know, after such a heady and heavy second outing with the last Jedi, they wanted something that maybe felt a little more star Warsy and was more camp and more lightsabers and just, you know, more of what they wanted to see from this trilogy. I understand why it's ticking a lot of boxes for people. I just think as a movie, it falls down in some pretty critical ways as far as how it's structured and how it's paced and, and how the narrative unfolds. But as star Wars, there's a lot in there that's very star Warsy and has all of the, the right themes and the right tones and the right feelings. So, um, I, I certainly wouldn't want to, um, suggest that anyone that's digging this movie that maybe they're not looking at it right. If, if it's working for them, great. I hope that at some point it works better for me. My, uh, I, more than anything, I think really, what frustrated me on first watch with this was the crushing realization that all of the, um, goodwill and hope that I had put on the leadership at Lucasfilm to really know what they were doing with this trilogy. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was kind of unfounded and that's, that's the frustrating part for me is, is realizing that, Oh, you know what? They bought star Wars and they were in such a rush to get these movies out there that they didn't stop and map it out. And we kind of knew that like Abrams had already sort of said it and Michael Arndt had said it. He said it, you know, I was working on this story and I, I think I knew where I wanted this to go. And I told Lucasfilm, I need one more year to make sure that this is all mapped out and that we're really going to get a slam dunk out of this trilogy. And they said no. And they brought Abrams in to, to rush it out a year sooner. 
And it was that critical mistake, which I'll put at the feet of Bob Iger. I think that was his call that I really think hamstrung these movies from being all they could be because the characters are fantastic. They set up so much great stuff and the chemistry that they established and Kylo Ren huge win as a villain. You know, we don't get a lot of good villains in these kind of, you know, pulpy adventure movies. Kylo Ren was a genuinely good one that had a lot of potential. And Ray was a fantastic heroine. As much as people would call her a Mary Sue, Daisy Ridley as an actress and as someone that you want to go on an adventure with, she was great. Yep. You know, so they had all sorts of wonderful stuff that they were starting with. And man, if someone had been steering the ship, mm-hmm. I think we could have got somewhere fantastic with it because they had all the pieces. Yeah. And uh, I just wish that it wasn't just course correction after course correction after course correction. It didn't have to go down like that. I, I would have waited an extra year for a trilogy that really knock my socks off. And that's what would have set them up for continued success. They would have understood the formula and we wouldn't be having these, well, let's go on hiatus. Let's, let's take all these movies, you know, out of, um, pre-production, put them on the back burner. Cause we just don't know what we're supposed to do with it. I think they could have learned a lot more if they had really taken their time and done this trilogy. Right. And, uh, yeah, sidelining Michael Arndt and trying to rush it and trying to put JJ in there to, uh, yeah, just get something to market as quick as possible. It was not the right long-term thinking that Star Wars needs. Yeah. George Lucas poured over the first Star Wars movie for years. Mm-hmm. And even then it was still, you know, it still needed a lot of continued development. And it's a miracle that the trilogy came together as nicely as it did. So this was their chance to really say, you know what? We know going into this, we're doing a trilogy. So this is our chance to not have to shoot from the hip and make it up as we go. And I just don't understand why they didn't do it. Yeah, and I definitely think that when Abrams and Lucasfilm parted ways after The Force Awakens, they needed to take more time. I think that they needed to take more time and figure out where they were going at that point because they did push out The Last Jedi, and Ryan Johnson started that film before he had even seen Mm -hmm. The Force Awakens. He had read the script, and he had saw saw some of the, the, the footage from... From that but he never saw the completed film so it you know you can say it all goes back to those type of things i'm gonna get a lot of backlash for this because i have always defended the uh the idea that kathleen kennedy's job was not on the line <laughs> i truly think that i'm i'm on board with you now with the hiring of kevin feige i truly think that that is exactly what lucasfilm is doing if it takes away her job, I'm not too, I'm not, I don't know about that, but I think that Kevin Feige is taking a bigger role than just working on a trilogy sure. of films or whatever it was that was quote unquote. Le- was one film was all, was all that was confirmed. It was one film was. Yeah. So I think his role is going to be one that he took in Marvel because that was, that has been the biggest criticism with, Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm was that no one was steering the ship. That's Mm -hmm. real. No matter how you feel about Kathleen Kennedy, you could love her. I'm sure she's a lovely lady. Uh, And she's a great producer, but she's an enabler of directors. We needed an executive producer. She's used to working with Spielberg, you know, like she's used to working with directors that have vision and George Lucas, you know, she didn't have to 
uh, be the myth maker. She didn't have to be the figurehead on top of it. So as the, the head of a studio now, I don't think, uh, she genuinely understood that her role wasn't just to facilitate directors. It was actually to make sure that there was a cohesive direction for the, you know, the whole IP. And, uh, that was the big chunk that was missing. Yep. If you look at what they did, uh, a year ago after last Jedi came out or after solo came out, um, and they started pumping the brakes. They basically said after rise of Skywalker, we have effectively a three year hiatus before mm-hmm. another one hits the theater. And then we're going every other year after that until, yeah. you know, until we're more comfortable that maybe there's reason to do more. So my hunch is at this point, those slots are probably whatever Kevin Feige is going to map out. Mm-hmm. He may direct one of them. Maybe, you know, Ryan Johnson's in the mix. I doubt it. Uh, the other directors are probably just going to be competent people that they, they pull up from, uh, the farm league, you know, the, the people working on the Mandalorian or the Obi-Wan series, or maybe on Marvel movies or whatever, like they'll find the directors, but the next time a star Wars movie gets into the box office, I'm reasonably confident that there's going to be a long range strategy where they have at least 10 years of storyline mapped out. I, I, they, they must understand at this point that that was the critical piece that they rushed and it it's costing them. It's yeah. costing them a billion dollars at this point in box office revenue because, uh, they didn't take the time to really do right by this franchise. Yeah. And I think that, I think it's definitely going to be closer to the Peter Jackson approach where it's all, everything is completely laid out before they even start filming the first one. That'd be nice. I'd, I'd be happy with a, a halfway point, like just break it like a TV show. You don't have to have every script written, but get your brain trust in a room, get the story group collaborating, get the directors that you want to get involved collaborating and just map out the big story beat so that one director knows where the next person needs to pick things up. What do I have to have set on the table for the next guy to come in and work with? If they just have the main thrust of the narrative sorted out, they can make some fantastic movies because they're these movies did not suffer from production values and they didn't even suffer from lack of um like directorial talent. Mm-hmm. Ryan Johnson is fantastic. Yes. He just he just needed a second set of eyes to make sure that he was making a Star Wars movie, <laughs> you know, and and not a Ryan Johnson movie. That was the only problem was yeah, they just they cut him too loose. And so he made something that was cool in a bubble, but <laughs> but in the middle of a trilogy, uh it was it was a field of landmines. So ah, uh, yeah, I don't know. I really, really hope the, the next theatrical release we see out of star Wars feels like it's got its head screwed on straight. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to sum it up all this way. You know, it's 2019. (laughs) We have another star Wars trilogy with more on the way, no matter, you know, no matter how these this last trilogy has done or how you feel about them in your own opinion, we are getting more star Wars properties. Mandalorian season two is coming all i mean we got we got in february we're about a month and a half away from clone Wars season seven i mean it's just right it's we got a lot of stuff coming i don't think that disney is you know pulling the e-break and saying okay star wars get out of here we're done with you we're throwing off (laughs) no side here no it's definitely something that we are going to see more of in the future it just may not be in the form that we thought it may not be a, a, a film every year. And I think at one point the plan was releasing two films right. every other year, doing a, uh, an anthology film and then a, a trilogy yes. film. I don't think we're going to get that anytime soon unless they're all mapped out. I think it would be nice to take a break, 
even and focus on some of the side stories that they wanted to focus on, which I think, of course, Obi-Wan is is that and they're doing mm-hmm. it for a show. So I think that they're on the right track. I think that they're listening to people and they're doing the right thing. But it's 2019. We have another Star Wars trilogy that has a bow on it. Whether you think it's a nice and tidy <laughs> bow or a poppy bow, it's still a bow on it. It still was a Christmas treat for me. I I love it. I'm going to go watch it again. I'm going to keep watching it. And it's the it's the conclusion of the saga that we got. And, you know, I didn't think we were going to get it. And we sure. got it. So I am so happy for you. Like, I, I'm happy that you can embrace it the way that you can. And I hope that I get there myself because... Yeah, I'm just really struggling with this. And um, I hate that because we know the tone of this show, you know, when we, we started developing, you know, what do we want this show to be this podcast? We don't want to be haters because we're not, you know, we, we watch the movies because they're fun and they're enjoyable and, you know, it taps into something that's very satisfying. Um, there's no reason to get so proprietary about them that you, you really feel like you need to just you know, get riled up and get on the internet and start taking people down who don't agree with you. Like that's, that's a bridge too far for what we want to do here. So I'm frustrated with myself that as we're talking about this, the only things that I can come up with are the things that, yeah, just really, really impacted me when I saw it. And and they just weren't the positive things that I normally get from a star Wars movie. And, um, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. And so I, the, the criticisms are what they are. They're meant with love. Like they're, they're, they're meant from a place of, uh, I really enjoy these these films and and this franchise and I I I love to be surprised and thrilled when I go to the theater and when it doesn't happen it's not you know uh I'm going to come out swinging but I I got to at least be honest with how I felt about it and uh I just really hope that in 3 years when hopefully Kevin Feige has had a chance to make an impact and and maybe they've you know really reassessed how to go about this this property I just, I really hope that I walk into the theater and I'm thrilled and we can sit down and record one of these and it'll be a love fest because those are much better podcasts to yeah. record and much better podcasts to listen to too. So, uh, I am hopeful and fortunately for our listeners, we got two episodes of Mandalorian left to cover that we're going to be getting out in short order and I can spoiler alert. I have a feeling that those are going to be very upbeat podcasts. Cause I know I have some very warm feelings about how that series is shaping up and uh, yeah, so much more coming down the pipe. We got the end of resistance. We got clone Wars. So there's lots of great things that are, are going to have us jazzed about star Wars. Um, just for me on this one, a bit of a misfire. And I, yeah. I just, I really hate that. This is definitely a, a really different <laughs> episode for us. We are, if this is your first episode listening to star Wars, <laughs> We, of course, are Star Wars TV talk, and we have been talking about the television properties, but you can't have a Star Wars podcast and not talk about this movie. So please tune in to the rest of our podcast. I can assure you the tone is is a little bit different. Uh, We're we're on the same page with Mandalorian. Can't wait to talk about that stuff. So if you haven't started watching Mandalorian yet and you are watching this podcast, we have our episodes in order. Go and watch the Mandalorian. Listen to Star Wars TV Talk. And you can find us on Twitter at Star Wars TV Talk. And email us at hello at Star Wars TV Talk. And you can find our show online at StarWarsTVTalk.com. And by searching Star Wars TV Talk wherever you get your podcast also please leave us a five-star review that would be great we are also part of the tv talk podcast network and you can find more of our shows at tvtalk.fm other than that john where can the people find you oh go over to snlpodcast.com i talk about saturday night live uh i was in new york eddie murphy 
big uh, SNL alum, hosted the Christmas episode. Turned out it was a pretty darn good episode. We just posted our coverage of that. If anyone is interested in that sort of thing, find us at snlpodcast.com or search for SNL After Party in all of your podcast apps. And thank you so much for sticking with us through this extra long episode of ours. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> Please tune in as we conclude our discussion of the Mandalorian, which we are just super excited about. And we have already seen the last two episodes and I can assure you those are going to be fun episodes. So thank you so much for listening and may the force be with you always.